Hello there, space fans, and welcome to another edition of Last Week in Space, the Supercluster podcast and brings you all the biggest news updates from the world of space exploration. I'm joined today by Chris Gebhardt, Assisting Managing Editor of NASASpaceFlight.com and contributor to Supercluster. Great to have you back, Chris. You've been doing a few episodes with us recently, but our last episode, we did an entertainment special. So this week, we're back into the nitty gritty of the space industry. And it's been a whopper of a week. So we'll, uh, <laughs> <it> we'll, <laughs> we'll start off with this OIG report. It's a government report that basically takes a look at different federal agencies and how they're managed and how they're budgeted and things like that. And there was a report last week that said the important points were Boeing's Starliner capsule, the crew capsule, is going to cost more than what we're paying the Russians right now, which is pretty funny considering that one of the big sells of the commercial crew program was so we wouldn't have to pay the Russians, I think it's like 81 or $82 million a seat. The OIG report showed that Boeing's cost to launch Starliner on Atlas with a person would be around $90 million per seat. And we'll get to the responses from NASA and Boeing, but that was part of it. Chris, what else was in that report that people were angry over? Well, the really big thing actually that came out of that report was the revelation, at least the public revelation, that NASA has paid Boeing $287 million above the agreed-upon fixed-priced contract for... The key being fixed price. Yes, like, but... but yeah. so, so we'll get to this because there's some deceiving element to that name. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that was the big revelation that an additional $287 million was paid by NASA to Boeing for the what are known as the post-certification missions three through six. So the way the commercial crew program works is that the flights were split into two categories. The first were the test flights, which for Starliner is the upcoming orbital flight test without a crew, followed by the crewed flight test. And then six post-certification missions, with the idea being that those first two test flights were meant to help certify the overall vehicle and design for launch. And both SpaceX and Boeing were guaranteed six post-certification missions. So the specific $287 million payout was for post-certification missions three through six for Boeing. And the OIG report was a little vague on exactly why it it kind of centered around this idea that there were some different things asked for in those missions and that the money was meant to help stabilize the schedule for those missions. And the OIG report's big takeaway there was that the $287 million was unnecessary and a bad expenditure on NASA's part because the OIG report felt that the agency, being NASA, did not properly investigate other ways to mitigate potential schedule slips, up to and including buying more seats on the Russian Soyuz rockets and spacecraft. Now, there are some problems with that, but that was the overall emphasis from the OIG report. So in the days following this news... Both Boeing and NASA put out statements that contradicted some of the information in that report, right, Chris? Yeah, and and I wouldn't say contradicted more. Some of the statements from Boeing and NASA clarified some of what was asked for. And, And this is where I say that firm fixed price is a little deceiving in this regard. So 
What came to light that was not in the OIG report, or at least prominent in the OIG report, was the fact that this payment was actually in large part because NASA came back to Boeing as the design of Starliner was evolving and asked for things that were not part of the original contract that Boeing had bid for. So NASA's response was to say that some of what was in the OIG report was misleading because NASA, in some regards, changed the nature of the game halfway through. And Boeing thought it was only fair to say, well, if you want these added things that were not a part of the original contract, you need to pay us for that, which is not an unreasonable position Mm -hmm. to be in. And a caveat that is usually allowed for in firm fixed priced contracts, that if the contracting agency desires to change something to the contractee, there can be a negotiation for that. So that was part of it. The OIG report also mentioned that NASA felt pressured to pay Boeing this money because Boeing said, well, if you don't give it to us, then we're just simply not, we'll just simply refuse to fly post-certification missions three through six and basically quit the commercial crew program, which would be a wild breach of contract and would get Boeing into billions and billions of dollars of lawsuits and liability. And Boeing and NASA both resoundingly refute that that was ever part of the conversation or even implied. And it's also worth noting, too, that the OIG reports statement that, oh, well, you could have just bought more seats on the Russian Soyuz and fixed this problem, has a very large legal barrier in that after December 31st, 2020, the United States cannot purchase seats on a Russian Soyuz as part of the sanctions against Russia that went into effect after the annexation of Crimea. I believe that was back in 2013 or 2014, but has been allowed to continue in the purchase of these seats because we had no other way for US, European, Canadian, and Japanese astronauts to reach the International Space Station without the Soyuz. And the Soyuzes require pretty significant lead times to build as well that that Russia is just simply not planning for and that per the international agreements are not there. So you can kind of start to see that the entirety of the OAG report should potentially not be taken at face value and that there were some things missing in that regard. Uh, what about this price for a Starliner seat, this $90 million? Yeah, so Boeing did have a statement earlier this week that said that the bottom line of it was that while they weren't going to release the actual price per seat because they deemed it proprietary information, mm-hmm. uh, that it was cheaper than what the OIG had stated. And I think it took a lot of people, that that 90 million price tag took a lot of people by surprise as well. So Boeing refutes that wholeheartedly as well. I saw the internal emails that were sent to Boeing employees in the hours after the OIG report. And some of it threw shade at SpaceX, of course. I think there was a comment about, well, we've actually worked on a human-rated hardware and things like that. I think we'll have to wait and see on this situation. On Boeing's part, they are right. A lot of that information is proprietary. And I I was surprised to hear that a Starliner seat cost $90 million, And I just think that can't be a right number. It has to be lower than that. I agree with you on that point yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll wait and see. Speaking of Starliner, though, early this morning, they rolled Starliner out to be mated to the rocket, 
right, Chris? You were, were you there? I was not. It was in the extreme early morning hours. Okay, that's too early for Chris. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Sure, but no, I was not there. This was a primarily a rollout event, and but it's a huge, huge, important milestone for Starliner. The rollout to the pad caps a very busy three-week period for Boeing and the Starliner teams that included the successful pad abort test earlier this month at White Sands missile range in New Mexico. It also represents the the final fueling and closeouts of the flight-worthy Starliner for launch. And it is it has been mated to the top of the Atlas V at this point. And it caps off a busy three-week period and starts a new very busy three-week period where they will go through very intense integrated testing between Starliner and the Atlas V rocket, really verifying that everything is perfect. And this will also involve rolling the Atlas out to the launch pad at Slick 41 and going through a full wet dress rehearsal up to the moment of engine start. They will not actually light the engines on the Atlas V, but they will do everything but light the engines to make sure that every system between the spacecraft and the vehicle is talking properly to one another, including through countdown and fueling. So very busy, and and Boeing notes that from a technical standpoint, they still have margin in their schedule to meet the no earlier than 17 December launch date for Starliner. But also included in this upcoming three-week period are the very critical and important flight readiness reviews from NASA as well. So lots and lots of work still to go, but definitely in the home stretch now for OFT and Starliner. And this orbital flight test is going to be uncrewed. It'll be a round trip to the space station to test out all the spacecraft systems and, and things like that. I will be flying down to Cape Canaveral on December 17th. I'm not sure my flight lines up with that first launch window on that day. Just going off of my experience as a spaceflight journalist, I'm going to bet that it might get moved a day or two. So I don't know. We'll see if I actually make it down for OFT. If I do make it, I will be at Kennedy Space Center for it, or Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, I should say. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, because we also it's also very worth noting that the, the time to get Starliner off the ground and launched for OFT is, is rather short and compressed because ULA... Mm needs to start stacking the next Atlas V, and they only have one launch pad to do this at. Right. They need to start stacking the next Atlas V for the European Space Agency NASA mission in early February called Solar Orbiter, because Solar mm -hmm. Orbiter has to hit a 19-day interplanetary launch window to Venus. And if they miss that window that runs for 19 days and opens on February 5th, the mission will be delayed by, by nearly 10 months. And because of how ULA handles these interplanetary missions and everything, they need to start stacking that Atlas in early January. Um, so very little time here at the end of the month to get Starliner off the ground. And, you know, the, these two missions are both NASA missions, but the big flagship interplanetary mission with the European Space Agency, those almost always get priority over everything else because of the launch windows they have to meet and the associated cost of missing them. So it will be very interesting to see how this all shakes out at the end of the year. Also on the move is NASA's Orion spacecraft, which is 
being manufactured by Lockheed Martin. The Orion is an integral part of this return to the moon architecture. It's a deep space vehicle. It's a deep space human rated vehicle. It has not flown humans yet. It did one orbital flight test back in December of 2014, and it flew atop a Delta IV heavy rocket. So this Orion spacecraft has been manufactured, being tested. It, it went through a power on early this year. And they are moving it to Plumbrook, Ohio. Chris, can you give us an idea of what's happening next with Orion? Yeah, so this is a huge milestone for Orion because this is its big moment at going up to Plumbrook at the Glenn Research Center where it will be put through vacuum testing and thermal testing and vibration testing and acoustic mm -hmm. testing. Basically, the, the final things on the ground to verify that everything is ready, that it's ship shape, it's airtight, it can survive everything that's going to be thrown at it during the Artemis One mission. So huge, huge milestone for Orion and its European service module as well. So this is a, a huge tick in the box of accomplishments for the Orion program as a whole, as Orion just continues to march down toward being ready for Artemis One as early as late next year. Right. And like what I mentioned before, this Orion spacecraft is at the center of this Artemis plan and part of this effort, I should say, to get humans back to the moon by 2024. And, you know, we've been waiting on Orion for a couple of years now, just like we're waiting on SLS. And it's sort of, you know, NASA's big component in their architecture for deep space travel and, you know, this moon to Mars architecture as well. So um, it's cool to see they're making really great progress with Orion and sending it up to Plumbrook. Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but whenever we see in NASA movies, movies that feature NASA, I think Armageddon especially, the Plumbrook has this giant chamber where they it, they close it like a lid and they suck all the air out, right? Yep, that's that's yeah, essentially yeah, it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know it's been featured in a few movies, but it's such a cool facility. I want to visit one day. The facilities are massive because they have to simulate that space and and that volume and and everything else. So it's a, it's a pretty cool facility. It's where spacecraft go to like be proven. Yep. You know? Yep. It's it's yeah. where the Crew Dragon capsule for DM one went for its proofing before launch. It's where the Dream Chaser will go for, for its proofing. So it's not just NASA spacecraft that, that it's uses a lot it. It's the private sector as well that, that uses this right. facility to prove that they're ready to go. Right. Chris, what's going on? You mentioned there's been some progress on, is it a, a spacewalk? Yeah. So this is actually a pretty exciting series of spacewalks that will be taking place throughout the months of November and December, revolving around the repair of the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer Experiment. And this is a pretty cool dark matter, antimatter experiment in, in the particle physics world that all the way back to the beginning of the International Space Station program in 1994 was an integral part of the station's overall science objectives. It was originally slated to launch in the mid-2000s aboard a space shuttle mission. That mission was canceled in the wake of the Columbia accident. And AMS was actually kicked off the entire shuttle manifest in the wake of Columbia before NASA petitioned Congress in 2008 to add a space shuttle mission, which became STS-134, the final flight of the shuttle Endeavour in May 2011, which delivered the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer to the station. 
But a cool thing about this experiment is it was never designed to be serviced in space. It was never designed to be touched by humans after it was stuck onto the end of the station. And because station's longevity has continued and this experiment is deemed of such critical importance, NASA was kind of faced with a daunting task of going to repair this thing that was never designed for repair. And it's basically the equivalent of doing neurosurgery in space because they're having to cut into pressurization lines and coolant lines that were never designed to be touched. And it's a really cool four spacewalk series. The last one was done on November 15th. That was the first one that was accomplished. The next one will be on Friday, November 22nd. And the first one went extremely well. Not only did they accomplish all of the tasks that they had planned, but they actually got so far ahead of the timeline that they had to completely replan the second spacewalk because they got so far ahead. So really exciting things are going up and going on outside of the station for these spacewalks. Amazing. And by the time our listeners get this episode, hopefully that uh, EVA would have gone really well on Friday. So yesterday, Wednesday, (laughs) I was on my way to the studio to tape with Chris and he calls me while I'm on the train and he says that Starship just blew up. And of course, I hop on Twitter and Starship blew its lid during a test. It's not impressive. Yeah, but but not a bad thing, as we discovered very quickly. Uh, Yes. (laughs) And before we even get into it, Elon had tweeted that this test article, this Mark One, was a more of a manufacturing pathfinder, which means they were building it to see how it would build. And the decision was actually made. See, uh, as of Elon's presentation a while ago. He said that they would fly Mark 1 and Mark 2 on these hops, suborbital hop, and then uh, a little further after that. Before this explosion yesterday, they actually decided not to do that. And they had actually decided to go straight to flying the Mark 3. But, you know, lo and behold, the Mark 1 blows up. Well, top half, I should say. It blew its lid. But Chris, what happened? What was? And I know that SpaceX put out a statement, which you, you can tell us what, what it says. Yeah, so I guess sort of to kind of set the stage for people of, of why this is a bit, why it took some of us off guard yesterday is because there had been no real forewarning based on Cameron County, Texas road closures, right, that they were going to be testing. The real first announcement of that that we got was when the locals were told to get out of their houses and evacuate the area. So we thought they were doing another, you know, pressurization test or gaseous nitrogen purge test on the vehicle like they had done the day before. So the cameras that were trained on it as it was doing this, and we could see some venting, and then all of a sudden, a seam popped and the dome of the liquid oxygen tank flew something like 150 meters into the air before coming crashing back down to the ground. All very dramatic, big white Technically a smoke. hop. Technically a hop. Yes, te- <laughs> technically part of it flew. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> hop one achieved. But SpaceX very quickly had a statement right. out that, that basically what they were doing is they were pressurizing it well above the pressures that they would do in flight. Basically mm-hmm. a, a pressurized to failure test right. to see how well the welds would hold up and at what PSI they would actually burst at. Not 
necessarily how most companies test their products, but it is how SpaceX tests their products. We saw this in the wake of the CRO, I believe it was the CRS-7 Dragon launch to the space station that suffered the in-flight failure. Mm -hmm. That after that and after the AMOS-6 conflagration on the launch pad, that SpaceX hauled a lot of equipment out to McGregor and pressurized it until it blew on purpose Mm -hmm. to, to see exactly how well these things could hold up and validate certain models. You know, the statement from SpaceX was basically we were pressurizing to max, which is where a lot of people read like, oh, okay, like you were pressurizing it as far as you could until it popped. Blows up. And they were very clear that this was not an unexpected outcome. You know, and just kind of a very visual, and this is SpaceX testing in the open for everyone to see what, what happens. You know, so not unexpected. And as Elon was very quick to say as well on Twitter, now we move on to the Mark III design, which is also being built at Boca Chica as well. And then I think we also had some other statements today as, as well, sort of confirming all of that as well. So that's that's sort of where we stand. M- MK1 is, you know, rest in peace, MK1. You did well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> a and, show piece. Yeah, and, and, it's, <laughs> and it's worth noting, too, that the, the nose cone, right, the nose fairing section mm-hmm. uh, was not attached at the time. It was just the lower propellant tanks. So right. they did not lose anything. There was no indication that any of the Raptor engines were installed no. onto them as no one local saw them being reinstalled after they were taken out after the presentation in September. So it does not appear that SpaceX lost any truly valuable hardware here in this, in this test. They lost their grain silo. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, water towers, man, you know, (laughs) they're not that expensive. Well, thank you, Chris. And we'll, we'll figure out what's going on with Starship down at Boca and at, at Cocoa beach. It's also being built there. So we'll have an update on, on those vehicles in the next few weeks. Like I said, I'll be heading down to Cape December 17th, and we'll probably be taping our last episode of Last Week in Space down at Cape Canaveral. We'll have a special guest with us. We'll be back next week. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Rob. Always a pleasure to be on. 